Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, Chuck, go ahead and roll. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. And we walk outside in the parking lot, and we can hear the cars running across the street. <laughs> and he's like, boys, we got to go. You were talking earlier also about how Dale was the basically the king of the freebies and you basically got he was a free pass to wherever <laughs> Dale Earnhardt was a free pass let me see your stuff like what are you talking about all your tricks all the things that you do all the things that you hide from NASCAR you know like we we don't have any we got Dale Earnhardt Richard wouldn't allow us to cheat he wouldn't allow us to do anything in the gray area you get busted one time and, and it makes it look like we won all these races because we were not doing things right the day nascar and all of us associated in any way with nascar forget its past that's the day we don't have any future hello everyone i'm steve wade and my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, we have the Darlington Cup and Xfinity events coming up this weekend, and I am going to be speaking at the Raceway Ministries breakfast both Saturday and Sunday. Well, how about that? I'm looking forward to it. They are going to be serving biscuits and gravy with all the fixings at the Raceway Ministries compound located there just behind the main grandstand, starting at 8.30 each morning. And Steve, I made sure before agreeing to speak that liver mush would be nowhere near the menu. <laughs> well, I'm sure that if liver mush was on the menu, 
your attendance would dwindle appropriately. So if you are on site, be sure and drop by, have some food, and say hello. All right, them biscuits and gravy, that's got to be a lure, Rick. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sure isn't my speaking ability. I can tell you that. <laughs> I didn't say it, you did. Well, you were thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, this week in the second installment of our interview with Danny Lawrence, he talks about Dell Earnhardt, the King of Cool, and freebies. Freebies. All yes, right. sir. He also recalls Richard Childress's strict ban against the tricks of the trade that nearly every other team in the garage was using. Now, that's highly unusual, Rick. You and I both know that most owners would say, all right, boys, they're doing this and getting away with it. We're going to do it, too but not Richard Childress. Well, I don't know how they wind up with a car that they can't fit the car cover over and <laughs> them having, uh, well, all right. I said that out loud. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 2nd, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. Surprise, surprise. Darrell Waltrip wins at Bristol while driving for <laughs> Junior Johnson. <laughs> Benny Parsons and Joe Milliken have a clash of fenders and tempers. Joel Halpern, David Pearson's car owner at the time, loses his life in a powerboat accident. There are features on Richard Bostick and George the T-Shirt Man and a column on Pat Allison, the wife of newly elected NASCAR Hall of Famer Donnie Allison. This week, we have increased Patreon support from Chris Dobbs and PayPal support from Bill Stripling and Ben Timmerman. You can also show your support by grabbing a T-shirt or two from our online store. And Steve, I've got a deal for our listeners. What's that? 25% off of the Scene Vault and Rick and Steve editions. All right. 25% off. Just enter the promo code Sasquatch <laughs> for 25% off those two particular t-shirts, the scene vault and the Rick and Steve editions. And the password again is Sasquatch, right? Sasquatch. S-A-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H. Remember, that's the way you spell it. Not R-I-C-K. Okay. It's Sasquatch. You can also show your support with a five-star rating and a written review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. So listeners, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis. You can do that via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Eighty-six, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, eighty-nine. Dale had some pretty high-profile run-ins with other drivers. You had D.W. at Richmond. You had Ricky. Rudd at, at Wilkesboro in 88 and 89, there were some pretty good scrapes there. What was the team's role in all that? Were you his enforcers or bodyguards, yeah. or did you just let him take care of that and keep working on the car? So we had a saying back in the day, and I think actually, I'm not sure if Wheel or Chocolate came up with this, but you know, when you were as dominant as Dale was in 86 and 87, you know, it, it, it's like people got to where either they wanted you to win or they didn't want you to win. And every time something would happen, they get, we would all say, I really didn't see what happened, but I know it wasn't our fault. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do anything yeah. wrong. But so, um, so we just basically kept our heads down. You know, we, we supported Richard and, and Dale with whatever. Dale was so... There was lots of times when he would call the race from from the driver's seat. Yeah. Kirk would say, or or Andy Petrie or Larry McReynolds, he'd say, okay, we're going to stay out. And he would say, no, I'm coming to get four tires. I'm not leaving here until you give me. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he's in, he knew. And he's like, well, nobody else is going to pit. Well, you know, he was never wrong. Every time he ever made a call, he – he either got back to where he was or he made it better. It was, 
he knew the car really well. He really did. So tell me about lunch at the Piccadilly. All right. So <laughs> this was about, I think it was a 88, 89, 90. So we're down in Daytona. And you're down in Daytona. You're there for almost two weeks. And Earnhardt had these places he loved to go. So right outside the tunnel, straight across the street in the Volusia Mall was Piccadilly Cafeteria. And Piccadilly Cafeteria had everything. You could go over there and you could get whatever you wanted. So he's like, boys, we're going to eat. It's just started raining. We're going to go across the street. So we all jump in the van. We go and we eat at Piccadilly. And, uh, Richard stayed back. Richard didn't go with us. This was before the big coaches and this and that. Richard was always Richard was always doing some business deals and working working the deals. So after we got through eating, um, he's like, "I want to go. I want to get me some CDs for my actually for the boat." And I can remember it kind of surprised me because I always thought that he would just be Dale would just be mostly country music. And, you know, he got some Sheryl Crow CD. He got, he listened to classical music. He had everything. So he goes in and he buys some CDs. And then, so we're getting ready to leave and we walk outside in the parking lot and we can hear the cars running across the street. (laughs) And he's like, boys, we got to go. So we get in the van, we fly back through the tunnel and we we pull back in the parking lot. And he's like, I'm telling y'all. Walk in here really, really cool and slow, like we knew they were practicing. Not going to yeah. let them see us sweat. Yeah. I'm going to go get my uniform on, and I'll be in the car. So we walked in, and we uncovered the car and got it ready. He walked in and went and cut a couple laps, and Richard never said a word about it. But it was like <laughs> Dale was big into making sure that nobody ever saw him sweat. It was like it was like – we got caught with our pants down that time, but he was like, nobody's, we're not going to run in there. We're not going to be in panic mode. We're going to be cool as it can be. <laughs> that was a big deal to him. So 1990, Daytona 500. You know the story. Well, you know the story yeah. better than I do. You were there. Take me through that last lap. So, you know, you're sitting there and you're just waiting for something to happen. And we'd went down there and we had won – the 499 we had won you know uh, you know in the 90s we didn't have the best cars all the way through the 90s we you know he won every single qualifying yeah. race yeah and it was like we would go you know we'd go testing we'd go testing at Daytona we'd go down there for a week and a half and then if we didn't feel like we were good we'd go to Talladega and test i mean we there was times that we had 30 days of testing, just speedway stuff, because, because Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress wanted to win the Daytona 500 so bad. So then coming off coming off the corner there, and uh, he runs over something and blows that tire, and it was just absolutely, I mean, to be that close, you can see the start-finish line. It, it, it was the lowest of the low. And I can remember him coming in, and he says, boys, it's 365 days before we get a chance to win this race again. It's like, it, it, you actually, he wanted it so, so bad. And then if you really look at the pictures from 98, it was like he had the pressure of thinking that he'd won all these races, done all this stuff, that he wasn't ever going to win the Daytona 500, that it just had haunted him. And to finally get that, that was... Big, big, big for for RCR, for Richard, and for for Dale especially. It was it it just changed him because he never thought he thought it was um, unobtainable, and he'd done everything that he possibly could do, and then to win it like he won it, and then have all those people come out and knew that he deserved it. I mean, it was you know it was it was a special, special, special day. What was it like for you? So. It was in shock because we had, you know, that was that was his twentieth try. Yeah, to sit there and just think that okay, you're just waiting, waiting, waiting. We'd been in that situation so many times, just waiting for something to happen, and for it finally not to. 
and to finally win the race, it will, it gives you a feeling inside that's just absolutely incredible to know that you actually had a lot to do with it. And uh, now you're talking about '98. Yeah, I'm talking about '98. Okay, all right. I'm talking about '98. Yeah. Uh, when he when he when it, uh, in '90, it was just crushing. Yeah. It was like, what what do we have to do to win this? I mean, we have done everything, every detail had worked and just night and day and hours of every little bitty thing that we could possibly do. And it, and it just something just takes it away from you over and over and things happen. And, and, you know, it is just deflating. Now, was there ever a point where you were like, okay, we've accomplished everything else. We've won all these championships. We've won all these millions of dollars, basically done everything you could possibly do in the sport. So maybe this is the one thing that we're not going to be able to do. It, that had crossed my mind. It, it had, because I know it had crossed, because Dale had made a comment. He's like, I guess we're going to win everything but the Daytona 500. And then uh, finally, finally when he won it, it was, I mean, if you look at those pictures of him and Victor Lane, it was, it was a major, major, major uh, step in his career. And, you know, to sit there and, because he was, he was pretty much convinced that it wasn't ever going to happen. What were you doing on race day? I know that you went over the wall some, catch can. You also mentioned the fact that you were a signboard holder. Yeah, early on. Now that. Uh, until Cecil Gordon came, I, I, uh, I, I did stop sign stuff back in early eighties, and that, then that took a special kind of crazy. Yeah, that did take a special because <laughs> because back then in the eighties, yeah, they were they were they would fly down pit road. Yeah, that was absolutely fly down pit road. But mostly, what I did is is I helped chocolate um, prepare the cans because back in the day. Um, we still we weighed the cans and made sure that they were full. I ran gas some, and then you put the the heads on. I mean, it was so much different than it is now. Bleed the cans, get them ready, um, and the gas cans weren't fast, and the and everything was, you know, the everything was slow. The jacks were fifty eight pounds, and I think yeah. I, I I I can remember when we get, when we got our, got our jack that that was forty pounds. That was a major step in the yeah. right direction and and you know you'd have a 22 second pit stop and and you'd still be waiting on fuel and that was fast back in the day yeah. 21 second pit stop i think set the world record back in yeah. in the 90s or or, or or whatever but uh mostly what i did is i handed a second can of chocolate and uh the fuel was the was a big big deal because you had to be able to hit it and chocolate was really really good gas man chocolate is is and was a lot stronger than what people thought. I mean, he's a big burly, but he could handle those gas cans really good. I mean, he he did a great job. The whole wheel wheel in, you know, and all the tire changers we had, our group was was really amazing. Rarely ever practiced, beca- really, because we were always working on the car. Wow, I mean, the car was what it was all about. And back in the day, when you had Dale Earnhardt, you know. He he knew how to pass people. When he get to me to pass them, it's not it's not like it is today. That it's today it's easier to pass cars on pit road than it is on the racetrack. We just made sure stuff didn't fall off, and we had really fast pit stops back in the day also. But uh, you didn't look at it like well, if you lost three positions on pit road or whatever because they did two tires and we did four tires. Earnhardt just always make up for it. You know, you just wanted to make sure that wheel didn't come off or this didn't happen. You, you didn't run out of gas or, or whatever. You were talking earlier also about how Dale was the, basically the king of the freebies. And <laughs> you basically got. He was a free pass to wherever. <laughs> Dale Earnhardt was a free pass. We were at, it was, it was back when Alabama was really, really, really big. And, um, Ralph Seagraves was really tight with Alabama, Randy Owen and yeah. the whole group. And uh, Earnhardt's like, hey, Alabama's playing at the Ocean Center. Y'all want to go? I'm like, well, we don't have tickets. He's like, we don't need any tickets. He made a call, actually talked to Randy Owen, and he's like, yeah, come on down. And so I actually drove. 
we went down there, and I remember Jeff Rux was Randy's coach driver. Earnhardt's like, he told you everything to do. Okay, turn left here, go here, you sit here. <laughs> you, yeah. He he yeah. he he directed everything. So we pull up right beside a Randy Evans coach, and he gets out, knocks on the door, walks in. Everybody wants his autograph. You know, Randy's Randy's like, hey Dale, you know, nice to meet you. You know, and this and that, and they actually become really good friends. I mean, uh, Randy Evans spent a lot of time with Dale. So we're driving this black Cadillac, and we're we're inside of Randy's bus, and Jeff Rux is he is Randy's caretaker, keeper, whatever you yeah. want to call it. He made sure he had yeah. everything that he needed, and Earnhardt kept new Cadillac had a push button. He kept blowing the horn on the phone, and I mean blowing the horn on the car. So yeah. so Jeff would go out of the bus, go see who was blowing the horn, and get back up in the bus. About the time he gets situated, Earnhardt blow the horn again. Jeff would go back out. Of, I mean, he did it to him like <laughs> ten times, and then. He comes in and he goes, "Are you doing that?" And he goes, "I might be." And I was like, "Everybody just like it embarrassed Jeff." Per, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. But but I'm gonna tell you though, I can remember that we were at Indy and they're like, "Hey, George Strait wants to meet you." Uh, George I'll, Strait wants to meet you. Yeah, George Strait wants to meet no, you. Well, bring him, bring him on, <laughs> o- bring him on over, bring yeah. him on over. You know, yeah. it, it's it's it, it's like wherever, whatever. All these people were Dale Earnhardt fans. You could have, I can remember Will Lynn saying this, and it's very true. You could have the nicest suit, the best clothes, or whatever. If you were wearing that good wrench shirt, it's better than anything that you. I mean, people would <laughs> buy your dinner. People yeah. would ask you to do stuff. I mean, we went deep sea fishing. We went. We did everything you could possibly do, and. Because People, of that Goodrich. Because, okay. because, yeah. because of Richard Childress racing the Goodrich stuff and Dale Earnhardt and this and that, it was, you know, it didn't matter what it was. I mean, uh, motocross it, and Earnhardt was like, I know somebody. You know, he 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 had connections everywhere we went. It was really amazing. What's the coolest thing that you got to do as, as a result of that Goodrich uniform? So I, we did – there's there's just lots and lots and and lots of neat things that we got to do. Um, probably the coolest thing is, is early on, um, me and Mike Dillon are in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the very first races at Phoenix. And uh, these, we're going to eat, and there's big, big Coliseum there in downtown. And he's like, wonder what all these people are doing. So we saw a sign, Eagles, live tonight, <clears throat> sold out. So Dylan's like, let's go see if we can get in. I'm like, it's sold out, Mike. And he goes, let's just go talk to him. So we're driving black Cadillac again. So we pull up in limo parking. Me and Mike get out. So we go to the go to the special VIP. Mike is he's really smooth. <laughs> so he goes up and he says, Hey. Uh, need to pick up our VIP passes. It's Mike Dillon and Danny Lawrence. And uh, he's got the RCR shirt on and this and that. And uh, the guy's like, I saw those. And he's looking through. And he's like, I don't see anything for you guys. He goes, hold on just a minute. And he calls somebody and he goes, I, I'm pretty sure that I might have given them to the wrong person. So they send this guy out. And he's like, so... Y'all with RCR? And like, yeah. And he goes, all right, come with me. So he carries us. He said, if y'all don't mind, this thing is sold out. I'm going to place y'all on the edge of the stage <laughs> where you can just look across and see. Yeah. And so I hope that's okay. I will get you guys a couple chairs. I'm yeah. like, like, that'll be all right. <laughs> that's fine. So they put us on the corner of the stage for the Eagles. It was absolutely incredible. So we're sitting there, Mike meets people everywhere. So we, he's talking to the drummer. He's talking, I mean, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to the roadies. So we get the whole list of songs. I think Mike's might still have that. And he's like, they're going to do two encores. And when they play hotel, California, that's the last song. This place is going to be crazy to get out of. So we watched the whole show. And then right when they started playing hotel, California, we left, pulled out of there, 
didn't. I mean, they brought us drinks. They brought us food. They brought us. It was it was absolutely absolutely uh, incredible. I mean, but there's so many stories like you that. You left during Hotel California. You we, left. We lit, during Hotel California. We lit, We left listening to it, <laughs> but we got to the car before it was over with. But so it, so I mean, there's so so many neat yeah. things that that yeah. you know we met the president and and uh, one of the one of the things I can't. I can't ever forget is, is they're they're talking about okay going to build Texas Motor Speedway, so they get the thing built and it's not it's not ready. We're going to go do a tire test, so we go down there with Earnhardt. We do this tire test, and Earnhardt's like, "You guys got any decent clothes?" I'm like, yeah, we we you know, we're going to eat with Ross Perot Jr. tonight. I'm like, okay. So we go to this place called Three Forks to eat, and we're in this special little room, and it's Richard and Earnhardt, all of us. Yeah. And that was the first time I had ever been around a politician. And I'm going to tell you, Ross Perot impressed me. So he sits there, and he gets everybody's name. And he remembers everybody's name. And as he's talking, he incorporated every person in the conversation he would say, David, you know, where are you from? You know, and this and that. Well, I had some people, you know, yeah. and he asked me, you know, so you're the engine guy. And he's like, that must be. And by the time we got through with that, I was like, that, he is absolutely brilliant. I mean, he worked the room. And, you know, you sit there and you see Richard and you see Dale how they how they could fit in with sophisticated. I mean, it was a he's very very yeah. intelligent. Yeah. Or or we could just you know be with the country folks. I mean, it was it was amazing, and that's why people love Dale Earnhardt so much. He was the people's champion because of where he came from and how he did it. Uh, I think that's why so many people loved him. Did you ever see Dale starstruck by somebody else? No, never did. Okay, he he. There's a couple things I can remember him saying. I learned from Richard Petty that my signature matters. That these people are are come to get my autograph. I need to be able to write it to where they know it's my autograph. And if you look at everybody's autograph, you look at Richard Petty's autograph, and you look at Dale Earnhardt's autograph, you know who it is. Yeah. A lot of these guys, you don't have a clue who right. it is. And he paid attention to a lot of stuff. He was, um, Dale was really, really intelligent when it came to, to stuff like that. There's so many things that we could talk about. I mean, um, hopefully Jeff Gordon won't get upset for me saying this, but back when we were racing Jeff Gordon and, you know, back and forth for the championship, you know, Andy Petrie and Ray Everham, they, they would go back and forth. They knew what what setups each other had, yeah. and Dale and Jeff Gordon, you know, on the racetrack, you know, they were doing all this drinking milk and this and that. They had they had property together. They bought land together, and nobody knew it. I mean, they 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 put on a show for the fans. And I mean, they, on the racetrack, they wanted to outrun each other, but they also wanted to make it good. Dale was brilliant at all that stuff. He would come in the racetrack and he would go, guys, I need y'all to wear these hats. We've, we've got 200 dozen and they're not selling. And he would wear one and we would wear yeah. one. And then in about two weeks later, he'd go, all those hats are grown. So all it would take was the team and him to wear these hats. So some of these hats that, that you'd see him wear, it was like, they're, I can't believe you get rid of them. But people would... <laughs> yeah. People would. I mean, he 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 would work that stuff. He knew he knew how to do it. He was he was businessman. So you win the championship in ninety and ninety one, but ninety two you hit a roadblock. What happened? Tires. Tires was a whole whole lot of it with with the tires. We could he couldn't get the feel for the car. He everywhere every week we struggled. You know it it, it would. You know he he was a big field guy, and they they had changed the tires, 
and it it took him a little while to be able to to figure out you know and and you know it's so crazy when when you're sitting there like in 87 and you're like how do you how do you win all those races and you're actually working way harder when you're not yeah then everything just kind of lines up and you go what did y'all what did y'all change it wouldn't change anything you know you know the crazy thing is i can remember that when Andy Petrie came, he's like, all right, I'm here. I'm going to be here for, you know, I got a two-year deal. Let me see your stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? All your tricks, all the things that you do, all the things that you hide from NASCAR. You know, I'm like, we we don't have any. We got Dale Earnhardt. We don't need all. Give me, show me how you take lead out or how you have offset wheels or what you do to the tires or all. I'm like, we don't we don't do none of that. So you're telling me that you don't like nope. And Andy's like Well, except for the long car that you couldn't yeah, get under the car cover. But it did pass inspection. <laughs> it did it did pass inspection. Okay, okay. All right. I got yeah. you. Yeah. That's so, an important distinction. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So so we had no, we had no tricks. We never put anything in the fuel. We never cheated the tires up. We never, you know, we didn't we didn't take lead out of the car. We didn't have anything that we went through inspection and changed. We didn't do any of that. We never did. Never had to. And you know, after you talk to people, everybody else was. So Kurt left, and as you've mentioned, Andy did come on board in '93. How big of a difference was that? It was big. It was it was big. So how difficult was it? It was it was it was you know Andy was a racer which which was really good. So we have these things at the shop. Um, actually, we have one tomorrow called all. It's all access to where we're trying to not just uh, give tours to people, but we're trying to educate people on the history and how things are today. So this all access pass is through the museum. I think we have 25 people tomorrow morning at 8.30. So they come in and they they buy a ticket. And uh, like tomorrow, me and Mike Dillon will show them through the museum, and then they get to see a pit stop, and then we take them and show them the new car, and then they get to go to the engine shop. It's behind-the-scenes tour. And one of the great things to do on this tour is is when you go in the museum, uh, when Andy first got there, he's like, Where's your surface plate at? Like, we don't have surface plate. Where do you set the cars up at? Out here in in the middle of the floor. We have assembly area on both sides. We set them up in the middle of the floor. Like, y'all, you don't have, like, nope. Well, we got to get a surface plate. So we come, and they cut a big hole in the floor, and they put this surface plate in. And then Richard walks in and goes, it's it's not level. It's two <laughs> inches off on the back yeah. side, and the front side's a little low. Like no, the surface plate's completely level. The floor's off, <laughs> and that's where we that's where we set all these cars up. It took us a little while with all of our setups yeah. to be able to compensate from that. But and Andy uh, brought us into the new age. You know, it was like we were setting the cars up on feed scales. We'd have four feed scales. You know, with the little bar yeah. that you put yeah. across there, yeah. and then you'd write all the weights down. And we got all computerized and. Because we were old school. Yeah. We were very, very old school. And Andy brought a lot of that stuff, you know, into us. And it's it so crazy. Is now, did we, he bring that to you with you guys kicking and screaming? Or were you? Will kicked and screamed a little bit. <laughs> uh, and um, Because, you know, Will was, Will was right there on top of it. Um, but we knew we needed to be better. And, you know, which all, all, that, all that stuff did, you know, it did help us get better and we would go do tests and stuff and um andy was really big on he brought the uh, our up to our standards we'd figure out something from a test and he would like don't touch those fenders don't you know the car set and before we didn't pay as much attention to that kind of stuff kurt did but Most of the guy, most of the guys didn't, and, and that that helped our consistency. You know, it it did it did definitely helped us. 
1994, Dale wins his seventh championship. What did that mean to you to be a part of that? Well, so the thing was, is I, I call it whatever you want to call it. We, we were the champions, but we felt like we should have won a lot more races and we felt like that we should have led more laps. And we felt like we always wanted more. Yeah. And, um, as soon as we won that, we we went to we got to win we got to win the most we got to win eight we got to got to we got to work really hard and figure out how we can win eight that's immediately what we what you know what we were looking for. How frustrating did it become when you didn't get that eight? It, very 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 frustrating because we had a lot of pressure on us. I mean, it was like every year somebody would turn out to be really good. You know, we would be racing somebody and, and, um, so many things were out of your control, you know, things that would happen here and there. And, and, um, you know, it, 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 when you lose your way in this race and stuff, you know, you need, and you really try to work hard to figure it out and you're doing all you can do. Um, it's, it's like, we always give a hundred percent. We always have, we have this saying at RCR that, that, we have part-time people, we have full-time people, and we have all the time. The all-the-time people were the road people that, you know, lay in bed at night and figure out how to try, try to be better on your part of it and how to, how to how to be the best that you can be. We never we never took pictures of other people's cars. We never – we just worked on what what Dale said he needed. And, you know, even Kevin – and we try to do our own deal. I mean, we are we're away from everybody else. Our shop is not near anybody else's. We rarely changed any employees. Most of our guys stayed with us for years and years and years. And if they if they if they left us, they didn't they weren't in racing usually. So uh that helped us and hurt us. They you know, people wouldn't people in the Charlotte area would get on to something that we wouldn't know about and everybody that goes to lunch yeah. together yeah. or switch teams, they would have all the same stuff, you know. There's a few things that happened. I, I, there used to be a piece inside the manifold that, that was movable and um when NASCAR busted everybody with it, we won three races right after that because Richard wouldn't allow us to cheat. He wouldn't allow us to do anything in the gray area. You get busted one time, and and it makes it look like we won all these races because we were not doing things right. Um, we tried to do everything the right way, every way that that we we could. Hey, race fans! John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective, where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Dale Earnhardt liked to go to the Piccadilly Cafeteria just across the street in Daytona in the Volusia Mall, and apparently he got himself and the crew in a wee little bit of trouble there one year by maybe overstaying a little bit and missing the start of practice. Oh, is that what happened? Well, as I understand, if you sit down in the Piccadilly Cafeteria, you're liable to stay longer than you planned because it's some good eating right there. Evidently, Dale Earnhardt really, really liked it. And Steve, we have talked about Sambo's Tavern in Dover or just outside Dover. 
We've also talked about rendezvous ribs in Memphis several times. Where did you and Tom like to hang out when you were on the road together? Well, when it came to Daytona, there was one special place. And it was not far from the Piccadilly Cafeteria at all. It was in the Volusia Mall. It was Mr. Dunderbox's. That's a New York-style delicatessen right there in that mall. I mean, they had meats and cheeses and exotic foods for sale, and they also had some of those great New York-style deli sandwiches. Some of them were big as a football. One of my favorites was called the U-Boat. I cannot remember everything that was on it, but it was terrific, and it was big, and it was filling. Tom and I went over there at least three times during our stay at Daytona, and we weren't the only ones. Several other media types would join us, and we saw some NASCAR folks in there every once in a while. Mr. Thunderbox, I believe, is still there in the mall, and I encourage every fan that ever goes to Daytona, give it a try. He will not be disappointed. And what are some of the other places around the circuit that you guys like to frequent? Now, mind you, we're talking about restaurants, Steve. Okay. <laughs> we're talking about restaurants. That yeah, lowers the list. Liquid refreshment places. <laughs> that trims the list down pretty significantly. <laughs> there was Top of the River in Addison, Alabama. That was a pretty good place to go to. That's where I discovered for the first time fried pickles. and enjoyed that very much. Of course, in Daytona for dinner, there's always Gene's Steakhouse. Now, Jeans is no longer with us, but it was another dining institution in Daytona for the folks. In addition to Sambo's and Rendezvous, I have also mentioned Witch Barbecue in Nashville several times. And Billy Perkins, I know you're out there listening. I'm sorry, but I am still a Witch guy in my heart and in my belly. <laughs> <laughs> but there was also a place in Nashville called Fat Moe's. Well, Rick, you know all those cosmopolitan places, don't you? And with a name like Fat Moe's, it was pretty much everything that you would expect it to be. The Super Deluxe Burger was 27 ounces of meat. <laughs> 27 ounces of meat? <laughs> it came with pretty much everything on it. A large order of fries was a pound of potatoes. <laughs> it was, listen. It was a heart attack on a plate. And Steve, before you go down that road, no, <laughs> I never ate an entire super deluxe combo. Never even came close to it. That means it was very, very big, folks. Even Sasquatch has his limits. <laughs> <laughs> Danny talked about Dale becoming friends with the guys from the country music group Alabama and George Strait wanting to meet Dale. Can you imagine George Strait wanting to meet you? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> At all. And meeting presidents and eating dinner with Ross Perot and how wearing that GM Goodrich crew shirt was the ticket. Danny and Mike Dillon not only talked themselves into an Eagles concert, they sat on the side of the stage. Well, for Danny and Mike Dillon, that's certainly some perk to the job, don't you think, Rick? <laughs> They were definitely enterprising. <laughs> they were like, who are all those people? Why are they in line? And they figured out it was the Eagles concert. And next thing you know, Steve, they are on the side of the stage and whoever it is, is bringing them food and serving them. And yeah, I'm telling you, some people have all the luck, don't they? That GM Goodrich shirt was the ticket. Now, Wednesday Cup scene was no small thing either. What's the very best extracurricular thing that you got to do because you worked at Winston Cup Center? A buddy of mine, a long time ago, and he was big into rock concerts. He said, you got to bring some copies of Scene. We'll go backstage, and you use those copies of Scene as swag. Give it out to the roadies. Give it out to guys that are working on the crew back there. Once they get that in their hands, you're a friend of theirs. They'll get you in backstage. And you know what? It worked. Rick, I can't tell you how many concerts I got into through the backstage by handing out copies of Scene to the roadies. I'm telling you, more than one. Jay Wells, baby. That's him. <laughs> 
I got my Jay Wells ticket at a Van Halen concert one time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Backstage with Van Halen. That was the deal. But one of the very best memories that I have of being connected to scene was having dinner with my uncle Larry and his wife in Johnson city. Uncle Larry had seen me literally at rock bottom. He had picked me up off the side of the interstate and paid for repairs when my car broke down, coming back from the Bristol race weekend where we lost Alan Kowicki. Uncle Larry told me not to worry about paying him back, but that became a thing with my dad and Satan his wife at the time. <laughs> yeah. I've still got some issues with that one. <laughs> Better not go too far down that road. No, no. But, but once I got on my feet and started working at scene, I'd take uncle Larry and his wife out to dinner at the red lobster in Johnson city. Every time we raced at Bristol, I also arranged for he and one of the astronauts to go through a session of the Dell Jarrett racing school at Talladega. And I will forever brag about the fact that I was faster than both the astronaut and my uncle Larry. Then the astronaut, Jerry Ross, he would always follow that up by asking me how many times I'd flown on the space shuttle. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's settled that you. argument real quick. Yeah. yeah he got you there. <laughs> <laughs> and while we were at red lobster one night, a race fan came up to our table he recognized me and he started talking about how much he loved reading Winston Cup scene. He talked about how much he enjoyed my writing. He talked about how big a race fan he was and the look on uncle Larry's face. He was spun out. He could not believe that somebody was making that big a deal out of seeing me. And finally the guy left and uncle Larry looked at me and he went, Ricky, I thought he was going to ask for your autograph. <laughs> <laughs> And to tell you the truth, I have never in my life wanted anybody to ask for my autograph more than I did that night. But alas, the guy walked off and did not ask for my autograph. And I did not offer it. I did not chase him <laughs> down and offer it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame, Rick, because, yeah, I know you would have loved to give that guy an autograph after he made those compliments about you and scene. Well, I would have loved to have done it in front of Uncle Larry. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. Danny Lawrence had his GM Goodrich uniform and connections, and I had my scene shirt and company car. <laughs> <laughs> and I did too. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's Racing Showplace, April 2nd, 1981, issue of Grand National Scene. Darrell Waltrip won at Bristol while driving for Junior Johnson in the early 1980s. And in other news, the sun came up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Stop the presses. Now, this particular trip to Victor Lane was significant because it came in his first year driving for Junior. It was his third victory in just six starts that year. And... It was the first of what would eventually be seven straight wins at Bristol. Junior had a formula to win on those short tracks, and it seemed to always work. You take a look at the record book at each one of those tracks and find out which team owner had the most wins, leads in all-time wins. And Junior Johnson's name is at the top or very near the top at every single one of them. Darrell started from the pole and led seven times for a total of 323 of the race's 500 laps. He said early in the race, the car wasn't exactly right, but Junior put in a couple of rounds of bite, and then I hollered bombs away and dumped about 100 pounds of buckshot all over the racetrack. <laughs> okay, he didn't really say that, but wouldn't that have been something if he did? <laughs> yeah, well, he did say it, but he was with Dygard and Bertha at the time. Here's what Daryl actually said. Junior put in a couple of rounds of bite and it ran unexceptionally well after that. Now, Steve, shouldn't that say it ran exceptionally well? That's what I would think. Well, between DW saying it and you writing it, I guess we should be thankful that unexceptionally well is all that made it into the paper. Oh, here's the deal. Huh? On me again, huh? Yep. <laughs> okay, fine. You go right ahead. Call me Sasquatch. 
Call me, yeah. call me Sasquatch again. Come on. Bring okay, it, Cletus. Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it, Cletus. <laughs> Junior's car at this point had won 13 of the last 20 races at Bristol with drivers, including Charlie Glotzbach, Bobby Allison, Kel Yarborough, and DW. Junior added, I know you're going to love this, Steve. Junior added, we've had a real good combination at this track over the years. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's worked about every time we've come here. I've had several drivers to win, and I've even won here myself. I like that. We had a really good combination at this track over the years. That's probably true. But I would like to add that there probably was, uh, shall we say, some enhancement here and there. <laughs> we had a real good combination of this track over the years. That's one of those cliches that you can just imagine Crash Davis and Nuke Lelouch talking on the bus and <laughs> Crash is teaching Nuke how to do an interview and he's teaching him all the baseball cliches and everything. That's a NASCAR cliche. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. And Junior is not the only one to say combination. <laughs> we had a good combination and the boys back at the shop put it together. Yeah, right. <laughs> the race was marked by a confrontation between Benny Parsons and Joe Milliken. Benny spun in turn two on lap 417 after contact with Joe. And then they got together again under the ensuing caution. And then Joe went after Benny and ran him into the first turn wall. Joe said, I started under him coming off the second turn and accidentally spun him out. Then he hit me off number four under caution. I hit him back in the first turn and drove him into the wall. I lost my cool. To which BP responded, we touched and I spun out. I lost a lap. Then I see him running up under me under the caution. He ran into me between the third and fourth turns. I didn't hit him. You know, when Joe pulled his trick on Benny, it was right underneath the press box. And there was no mistaking that Joe did it on purpose. You could see him jerk his steering wheel to the right as hard as he possibly could when he was alongside Benny and drive Benny into that wall. Now, the most immediate thought we had after that was, well, why would Joe do something like that deliberately to Benny Parsons? Benny Parsons. He wasn't called Mr. Nice Guy for nothing, you know? <laughs> well, that's your take on the situation. Benny and Joe had their take. And here's a little more spice for the story. Who was Benny Parsons driving for at that point in his career? Oh, I know. Yeah, go ahead. That would be Bud Moore. That's right. <laughs> and Bud was not happy about his car getting torn up under caution. Bud said, it ain't no game when a man tears up my car. I'll straighten out Milliken's cool. Joe, you've been warned. <laughs> I could just see Bud standing there, having a big old wrench into the palm of his hand, glaring <laughs> and looking for Joe Milliken. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm Joe, I'm headed back to Randleman just as quick as I could possibly get there. <laughs> I think he did too. <laughs> Joel Halpern, who owned the team that David Pearson drove for at the time, died. March 28th, as the result of a powerboat accident on Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana, he was only 41 years old. David said, what in the world can I say? I don't even know what to say about it. He was doing what he wanted to do, just like I'm here at a short track in Kingsport, Tennessee, doing what I want to do. I told him he's crazy for racing boats, and he's told me I was crazy for what I'm doing. I'm a firm believer in that when it's your time, it's your time. Sad part about that is the media really never got to know Joel. He was a pretty distant guy as far as being a team owner was concerned. And few of us even knew that he raced power boats. And so when he died in that accident, that was really the end of chance of any of us to get to know the guy. I love the Our Opinion column in this issue. It was on Joel and his legacy in the sport. And the column read, he loved people. He didn't wear a preacher's cloth, but he was more a man of God than some people who do. He spent three years surveying, to use his words, the Winston Cup circuit. Joel didn't make his first official appearance as a car owner until the Winston 500 last May. Joel Halpern, a class man. What he has done would more than fill this paper. What we best remember is that Halpern always had time to return a call 
even though he was in Terrytown, New York. We have lost many good friends in racing, and each came as a shock. We just hope people will remember Joel Halpern because he was one hell of a man. We will never forget. Rest in peace, Joel. Now, Steve, today, as you mentioned, not a lot of people in and around NASCAR remember the name Joel Halpern, but here in the pages of Grand National Scene, his memory lingers. I was a before my time, it seemed, but I'll hazard a guess here. It sounds like to me that Gene Granger may have had something to do with that, our opinion, because of any individual in the media that might have known Joel better than anybody else, I think it would be Gene. Gene was from Spartanburg. He was very close to David Pearson. So I think that was the link. Pat Howell's column in this issue was on Pat Allison, the wife of Donnie. And according to Pat, here's how they met. He tackled me. We were playing football in the neighborhood park in Miami. It was touch football, but he tackled me anyway. All right, Donnie. (laughs) He just wanted to get his arms around her. Donnie and Pat had four kids, Pam, who was 19 at the time, Kenny, 17, and 14-year-old twins, Ronald and Donald. Now, Donnie managed to be at home for everybody's births except Kenny, who made his grand appearance into the world during the 1967 edition of Speed Weeks at Daytona. Pat said they were born back when men were not allowed in the delivery room. I wish Donnie could have been there just one time to see what I went through. (laughs) (laughs) you did this to me you did this to me i've heard that every man who was with his wife then said it made quite an impression (laughs) (laughs) i bet it did can i tell you just how thankful i am that richard and the boys adam and jesse were all born by (laughs) c-section i guarantee you i guarantee you dead up that i would have passed out absolutely passed out (laughs) Old Richard Bostick was featured in this issue. He was a full-time truck driver back then. He raced part-time in Fayetteville and Dublin in North Carolina, and he gassed Bobby Allison's Rainier racing car. Richard said, I don't hunt or fish. I can't see any sense in chasing a golf ball. What I do on race days is a job, but I love it, and that's what I call fun. In a pit stop, there's that element of challenge. Everyone gets together and says, let's click and beat the next guy out of the pits. Boy, when you've done that, well, it's a hell of a good feeling, let me tell you. Richard has been around a lot of years with a lot of teams, and he is quite well-known in the garage area, everywhere. There can be a difference between someone being a person of character and being a character, although a character isn't necessarily a bad person. In fact, most of the characters I've known in the sport are absolutely people of character. Yeah. Yeah, Rambo, I'm talking about you when I say that. (laughs) Steve, who are some of the characters that you've known over the years? Oh, many. James Hilton comes to mind. Raymond Williams, we called him Captain America. He was was another driver who who was a little bit off-center, shall we say. But I've got one for you. It's really unique and comes from the past, about 1979 was the first time I saw him. It was at Richmond. The big old boy. Walked around in shorts and a t-shirt and a cap. And he carried with him a notebook. And with that notebook, he had several loose-leaf papers. I don't know what he was doing with all that stuff. But he'd look down at his papers and then look out of the track and look down at his papers and look out of the track and something would startle him when he looked out of the track. And he shoved his papers aside, hold out his left arm and two fingers extended, and take out his right arm and put his two fingers from his right arm over the left two fingers and go slice it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What in the world was that? So I asked somebody, what's he doing? And they said, he's putting a hex on a driver. A hex? Yeah, he's cursing a driver. Wishing him bad luck while he's out there. I said, this is the strangest dude I've ever met. So I asked around about him. I never got his full name. They just called him Billy the Hex. Now, sure enough, next short track I went to, and I believe at this time it was Martinsville, he was there. And he had on his shorts, his cap, but a different T-shirt. The T-shirt was of Daryl Walter and the Die Guard team. 
I thought, well, that was different from what I saw at Richmond. And so he was doing as usual, carrying around a notebook, carrying around his papers, and doing that thing with his fingers where he's making the hex. So I finally asked another guy from the Dogard team, who is this guy? And he told me the same thing, Billy the Hex. I said, he's here wearing a Dogard t-shirt. You guys have anything to do with that? <clears throat> no, um, no, no. I can't answer that. No, no, no. <laughs> Rick, I found out later, believe it or not, certain teams would hire Billy to come and place hexes on other drivers. That's how he got into the pits and into the garage here. He was brought there by that week's team and put to good use <laughs> going around hexing guys. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's the weirdest character I ever saw. And to think he was at the track because the teams believed in hexes. <laughs> <laughs> well, my characters, they don't cast hexes on anybody. <laughs> Not you that gotta, we know of. <laughs> you got to consider dues. I mean, oh, definitely yeah. dues. He defines being a character in racing. I look at David Ift, who's definitely a character. Yeah. And the reason why I bring all this up, Gene Granger had a feature on a guy by the name of George Thornton in this issue. But he went by the name George the T-shirt guy. <laughs> he showed up at Daytona, his first NASCAR race ever, in a Purolator suite wearing bibbed overalls, a cowboy hat, and almost as much gold as Mr. T. Now, kids out there listening to this, if you don't know the Mr. T reference, look it up. <laughs> I pity the fool while we're looking up. <laughs> Bob was born in Boston. He lived and worked out of St. Louis with his Boston accent still prominent, and now he was looking to get into the NASCAR market. He had sponsored Lake Speed earlier in the season at Rockingham, and he'd also been on the car that Lee Kunzman attempted to qualify for the Indianapolis 500 the year before. George said, I'm a hustler. I like to will and deal with people. Some people might not take my quick-talking ways too kindly, but I'm in a hurry. I got a lot of things to get done. At that time, in that place, in that garage, I can't imagine that anybody talking that quick and that accent and being that kind of hustler and and whatever, I can't imagine that he was accepted with open arms. Well, Rick, we've been talking about characters, right? Well, old George here is a perfect example of that. Finally, to show how times have changed, someone wrote a letter to the editor who had put together a race result chart and to complete that chart, he wanted the addresses of all the drivers. <laughs> that was just asking for trouble. <laughs> Needless to say, he did not get those addresses. Hi, this is Tommy Houston. Hey, this is Buckshot Jones. Hi, I'm Jeff Green. Hey, I'm Randy LaJoy. Hey, race fans. This is Shauna Robinson, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Jeff Griffin has a question for you. I guess Jeff didn't want to ask me about anything. That's cool. Whatever. I'm a big boy. I'll get over it. But Jeff wanted to know, one of my favorite things to watch is a NASCAR Legends reunion that Steve was a part of in the late 1990s. I just wanted to know if he knew how that got put together 
and what it was like to be there listening to all those great stories. I believe it was done by the independent production company that rounded up all these drivers and media types and actually spent a lot of money flying us out to Nashville to do this show. We were all in one big room and we all talked about various subjects. And when you get a bunch of drivers together talking about racing itself and their experience in race, you are going to get some funny anecdotes all the way through. It was terrific. And it was very unique because they came out with, I think, a four VHS tape set of that entire conversations out there. Had a lot of fun with it. Where at in Nashville, do you remember? Well, Rick, it was it was a, some kind of studio in downtown Nashville. I know that. We prepared for it like you would for any show. We're all sitting there getting makeup put on us and things like that. And Tom and I, you can't imagine putting makeup on Tom, of course. <laughs> but we really had fun with it because there's old Junie Donnelly getting plastered up in makeup. <laughs> what a sight that was. Well, listen to the list of people that were there. Bobby Allison. Donnie Allison, Buddy Baker, Dick Beatty, Dick Brooks, Richard Childress, Junior Don Levy, Red Farmer, Harry Gant, Eli Gold, Barney Hall, Tom Higgins, Ned Jarrett, Junior Johnson, Dave Marcus, Cuckoo Marlin, Little Bud Moore, David Pearson, Ken Squire, Steve Wade, Daryl Waltrip, <laughs> Glenn Wood, Leonard Wood, and Kel Yarbrough. Now, can you just imagine the stories that were told that day by that kind of assembly and those guys there? I'm telling you, it's gold. It's NASCAR gold. Now, the one thing that I did notice was that Bobby and Donnie Allison were sitting at the complete opposite end of the room from Kel Yarbrough. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, it might have been seating by alphabetical order, but I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. The truth be told, I am a big fan of that show as well. And it's the tone that I try to set with everybody that we interview. I mean, it's the stories that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the stories behind the story and getting to know the people who made it all happen. And when you are in a setting like that, sometimes those barriers kind of come down a little bit and you get some great, great anecdotes. That's exactly what happened. In the taping of this, Rick, there was no barriers because everybody felt at ease and everybody knew everybody else and nobody cared if you were a driver or an owner or a member of the media. We were just all there together and happy to be there. Jeff, thank you for your question for Steve. Maybe you'll have one for me next time. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you do have a question for me and or Steve, email me at rick at the scene vault.com or tweet using the hashtag ask scene vault. That was a pretty cool idea to use Sasquatch, really. <laughs> I'm going to do that. I could use another one. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Good deal. All right. You ready? Ready. Go ahead. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. 